season of Lent, the time of year where we focus on Jesus' suffering, his crucifixion, in anticipation of Resurrection Sunday, Easter. And since we're in the year of treasuring the church as our annual theme or our focus, we're looking at Jesus' last words to the church, to his disciples, on the eve of his death. Now, spoiler alert, these are not Jesus' last, last words. He does rise again from the dead. Uh, but the tension and drama of the night before his death ensured that his disciples would never forget these words. Uh, Pastor Chuck Swindoll tells of a time when he was a young boy during World War II. His father worked at a plant making parts for tanks and bombers, and he worked so long and so much that he experienced a complete physical and emotional breakdown that was life-threatening and looked to be life-ending. Chuck Swindoll writes, I was convinced in my heart that my dad was going to die. One night, he called me into his room for a somber father-son talk. I remember leaning hard against his bed, listening carefully to a voice that was hardly more than a whisper. I thought I was hearing him for the last time. He gave me counsel on how to live, how I should live, how I should conduct myself as his son. The counsel wasn't long, and then I left and went across the hall to my room that I shared with my older brother. All alone, I lay across my bed and sobbed convinced that I would never see my dad alive again. That scene still haunts me. Even though my dad recovered to live, I will never forget the night he talked to me. Last words matter. Last words stick. Jesus' last words to his disciples include wonderful things that we've studied the past few weeks, um, like love one another, even as I have loved you. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. He said things like, I'm going away, but another helper is coming, the Holy Spirit of God who will dwell in you. He said things like, abide in me, make your hearts home in me, abide in my love. And these are wonderful, comforting last words for us to hear. But Jesus also has some other last words, words to warn us, to prepare us, to rightly set our expectations of what life in this world will be like. Without these last words, we might expect life, and even living as a Christian, to be a life full of endless delights and spiritual rapture. But with these last words, Jesus readies us for suffering, for persecution, and for cost in following him. He doesn't want us to be caught off guard, blindsided, unprepared. So he starts saying things like you heard read in chapters 15 and 16, like the world is going to hate you. You'll be thrown out of the synagogues. Some will try to kill you and think that they're doing God and this whole world a favor. You will have sorrow. In this world, you will have trouble. And you know, it's jarring when there's a difference between our expectations and reality. I remember going to Krispy Kreme one time only to find out that they had no donuts and I was completely emotionally unprepared for that. <laughs> My expectations and reality clashed. But this happens at way more serious levels, of course. You start a relationship with someone hoping to find total fulfillment, intimacy, and completion. And then at some point, inevitably, you're let down. Or you took a new job hoping that this career would bring less stress and a sense of satisfaction and it just didn't pan out. Or maybe you just thought parenting wouldn't be this hard and that your family doesn't look like the brochure of the nice Christian family that you were handed on the way into it. 
uh, University of Chicago historian Daniel Borston suggests that Americans suffer from all too extravagant expectations. He writes, we expect anything and everything. We expect the contradictory and the impossible. We expect compact cars, which are spacious, luxurious cars, which are economical. We expect to be rich and charitable, powerful and merciful, active and reflective, kind and competitive. We expect to eat and stay thin, to be constantly on the move and ever more neighborly, to go to a church of our choice and yet feel its guiding power over us, to revere God and to be God. Never have people been more the masters of their environment, yet never has a people felt more deceived and disappointed, for never has a people expected so much more than the world could offer. So what should we expect out of life in this world? Jesus warns us of sorrow, uncertainty, and trouble. And you're looking forward to the rest of the sermon now, aren't you? So why keep listening? More importantly, why keep going in life? Because as Jesus will show us, in him and because of him, your sorrow can turn to joy, your fear can turn to love, and your trouble can turn to peace. In Jesus, your sorrow can turn to joy, your fear can turn to love, and your trouble can turn to peace. First, your sorrow can turn to joy. We pick up near verse 16 where Jesus tells his disciples, a little while and you will see me no longer. And again a little while, and you will see me. And the disciples don't know what he means by this, so they start talking amongst themselves about what does he mean by, by this. You know, this is like kids in the car. When we travel and they ask me, Dad, how long before we get there? And of course, I'm duty-bound by sacred oath as a parent to say, in a little while. Yeah. And they say in response, what does that mean? Yeah. And Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him what he's getting at with all the now you see me, now you don't business. And so he says to them in verse 20, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now. But I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Okay, that clears it right up. Thank you, Jesus. You know, and by the way, sidebar here, uh, one of the reasons that so many scholars think that this is indeed John accurately reporting on Jesus' words, and not just a contrived account, is Jesus', Jesus vagueness with the disciples here. If, Jesus, uh, if this account was made up by the disciples later, it would be too tempting to put specific details in Jesus' mouth regarding what's about to happen. But Jesus is vague enough. We're not all as clear in the moment, and yet after it happens, in hindsight, his disciples would see that everything he said came to pass. So, Jesus is saying that although he's with them now, now you see me, when he's crucified and buried, now you don't, the world the religious leaders, the Roman authorities, and all those who lobbied for his death will rejoice. But the disciples will be plunged into terrible grief. But something's going to happen such that the very occasion or reason for their sorrow, follow me, his crucifixion, will actually become their greatest reason for joy after 
his resurrection. Now you see me again. And he explains this by comparing their sorrow to birth labor. Now, this is an interesting comparison that Jesus chooses to use. Because labor, as it turns out, at least from the outside looking in, looks excruciating. I think my eyes were constantly wide open and my jaw on the floor the entire labor of our first child. And then when Grayson was born, his delivery was somewhat traumatic. He got stuck. His heartbeat was dropping too low. And so the medical team wheeled Ashley back to the operating room very quickly and frantically. And I didn't even get a chance to go back there. They told me to wait, wait there. Someone would help me scrub in and go into the ER. And I just remember being so afraid. Bless his heart, Daniel Creswell texted me at like 7 a.m. at that time to see how it was going. And I asked him to please pray. And a few minutes later, uh, though it seemed like an eternity, the doctor came to get me and told me that Ashley was okay and our baby son had been born. So yes, labor was the worst, but the relief and joy of holding our son swallowed up the pain and the agony. And so by using this imagery of childbirth, Jesus is after something much more profound than just the intensity of grief that his disciples were undergo. He wants them to know that their grief will not have been wasted. You see, the very reason for pain now, i.e. childbirth, is the same reason for joy later, childbirth. The pain was not wasted. It was producing something. And I guess we did kind of forget about how bad it was because we had two more since. He says, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. The very reason for their sorrow, the crucifixion of Christ, would later become the greatest occasion for their joy. The one experience that for them was most agonizing after they saw him again would become their most cherished reality. And while this was written by John about Jesus' first disciples, he wrote it down for us, Jesus' later disciples. His words are for us today too. Hear him say, to you, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. As the church awaits the return of Christ, we have sorrow now, but when we see him again, and he sees us, somehow our greatest sorrows in this life will be swallowed up by an overwhelming, invincible joy. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.17, the momentary afflictions that we experience in this life now are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Suffering in the life of a Christ follower is never wasted effort. But you might feel, I don't see how that could be true in my case. There is no possible good that could come from what I have been through. And by all human reckoning, you might be right. But do you think these first disciples had any concept that joy would actually grow up from the soil of their master's grave? There's just no way. And yet. And yet. In Jesus Christ, your very real and very great sorrows will one day turn to joy. Second, your fear can turn to love. Now, Jesus takes an odd turn in his instruction. 
He goes on to say, verse 23, in that day, you will ask nothing of me. Or when I see you again, you won't need to ask me for anything. What does that mean? He goes on. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive, that your joy may be full. I've said these things to you in figures of speech, but the hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name. And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father." Now, the reason I'm saying why I say that in Jesus, your fear can turn into love is because here Jesus is making a wonderful promise about how his own disciples, instead of being distant and alienated and uncertain about their relationship with God, they will now have direct access and intimacy with God the Father. Jesus says, in that day, when you see me again, I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, point being you can ask him yourself. And even though it's true that Jesus Christ, God the Son, is the mediator, the true high priest between God the Father and sinful mankind, it's not as if he just mechanically conveys our prayer request to the Father and has to sweet talk the Father into listening to us or caring about us. Don't misunderstand the mediating work of Christ is somehow implying that Jesus is the nice part of the Trinity, whereas the Father is just kind of begrudgingly offering us his forgiveness because, well, after all, Jesus did go through a lot of trouble for us. The Father sent the Son so that we would become his children. The Father initiates a love relationship with us by sending His Son, and the Son secures a love relationship with God for us by giving His life. The Father Himself loves you, Jesus says, to all who believe and love Him. So I won't need to ask the Father for things on your behalf, He says. You can just ask Him yourself. But we will approach the Father in Jesus' name, notice. And what does that mean? Because let's be honest, for most of us, this is a rote statement at the end of our prayers. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. But it's meant to be a very rich statement because when we pray in Jesus' name, it means we are to pray for his purposes, with his resources, for his purposes, with his resources. I was going to use an example of a check, but I realized that's probably outdated. And let me try something a little more up to date. When I was in college, I would work on several side construction projects for my dad. And so at times, I got to carry with me on my person the family credit card. Now, students, maybe some of you sometimes get to use uh, your parents' credit cards or their debit cards. It's pretty great, right? But with that card, I could purchase things. I could purchase whatever I needed that was in line for the mission and purpose for which I was given the card. So I couldn't just go to the movies and pay for the card with that, although my dad might have let that slide sometimes. But anything that I judged necessary for my dad's projects would be covered by his bank account, not mine. Otherwise, we would not have gotten very much done. So when we pray in Jesus' name, we are praying first for the things that please him, that are in concert with his agenda for our lives and for the world. 
And then secondly, we're praying based on His line of credit, not our own. This is a wonderfully balanced way to pray, don't you see? Incredibly generous, ask anything, and yet helpfully focused in my name. So for all who love and trust Jesus Christ, it's our great privilege to approach God as our true Father with great confidence that He really does like to hear from us. He loves to answer us and to provide what we need as we pray for His purposes with His resources. Pastor Dane Ortland says, the Father's own deepest delight is to say yes to the Son's pleading on our behalf. And I would add, to our pleading in the name of the Son. Ortland goes on to quote Puritan Thomas Goodwin, who said that the Father has a wide array of promises, a whole garden of mercies for His children for their specific needs. And now I quote Thomas Goodwin, if your heart be hard, His mercies are tender. Come to Him. If your heart be dead, He has mercy to liven it. Come to Him. If you be sick, He has mercy to heal you. Come to Him. If you be sinful, he has mercy to sanctify and cleanse you. Come to him. So the angst, the uncertainty, the fear and frustrations with which we all live can all be brought to our Father and be washed in his love. How might this teaching from Jesus change the way that you pray? Do you sit on the edges of God's presence slow and uneasy to approach him because, you know, it's been a while since you've called. But for all who are trusting in Jesus, the Father himself loves you, welcomes you into his presence, and your fear can be replaced by love. And then lastly, your trouble can turn to peace. Jesus' disciples, they chime in here, verse 29, They say, ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. So they think they get it. And I'm not really sure how much they do understand at this point. I don't know if they're just acting like us when someone asks you, you know, if you've seen a certain TV show or read a book that you haven't seen or read, but you don't want to look uncultured. So you say, yeah, yeah, I think I watched a few episodes of that one time, you know. So I don't know if they don't want to look dumb or why they feel the need to speak up in this moment. I do think they genuinely believe that Jesus came from God, but their claims of understanding and devotion to Jesus are untested at this point. And when things go sideways, their real faith and fears rise to the surface. And even so, Jesus answers them, do you now believe? (laughs) Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, And in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So Jesus isn't so convinced of their loyalty just yet. He knows they're going to go back on their words and abandon him. And yet he's still thinking of them, still preparing them to deal with even their own failures here. 
I mean, think how guilty and ashamed they will feel in the course of just a few hours. He isn't saying these things so that they will have guilt, but so that they will have peace. They need to know that his arrest and his death is not out of control, not out of the Father's hands. He wants them to have peace in him. And so he prepares them. And he utters an immensely profound statement. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart. Have courage. I have overcome the world. Now, how would you, in your heart, have liked that sentence to go? I mean, as a modern American person, really, how do you want that sentence to finish? In this world, you will have, how about life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, opportunity, freedom. In this world, you will have health, choices, dreams, long life. Jesus has a different set of expectations for us. In this world, you will have trouble. Why has it got to be like that, Jesus? Well, first of all, this world is just a broken, fallen place for all of us. And the longer you stay here, the more you find that out. And even more so if you're a Christian. The world is double trouble for you because you will never really belong here. You will never truly fit in. The values and the priorities of the world around you are not yours. I mean, deny yourself, really? It's a lonely road. And it's been noted that we're entering a time in our culture where not only is there less and less social benefit to being a Christian, there's greater and greater social cost for being a Christian. As one commentator put it, to be at home with Jesus is to be at odds with the world. And some of us may not feel this quite as much yet in Wake Forest, but some of you, especially our middle and high school students, many of you who work in the marketplace are certainly starting to. It's not easy to be a Christian student. It's not easy to be a Christian businessman or woman these days. But in many places here, we are still lauded and apl even applauded for being good Christians. Church leaders are often honored more than they are persecuted. Seminary students, you're rewarded for your hard work, celebrated at graduation, and some of you may even be recognized at an awards chapel during the year where you can win like best preacher or best evangelist. We have Christian record labels, Christian music awards, and an infinite amount of Christian podcasts. This has not been the normal experience for followers of Christ throughout history and across the globe. We are truly insulated here. But Jesus is trying to get us ready for the day when we might be dragged away. What then? In this world, if you are a Christian, you should expect trouble. But even today, if you're listening and you're not a Christian, consider Jesus' statement as well. How unique it is compared to any other religion or philosophy. Now, the first part of Jesus' statement is not too controversial amongst other uh, belief systems. Most would agree with the first part. In this world, you will have trouble. 
Even Wesley slash the Dread Pirate Roberts from the movie Princess Bride gets this right when he says, life is pain, your highness. And anyone who says differently is selling you something. But other religions or belief systems would finish the sentence very differently. Buddhism would say, in this world, you will have trouble. So, detach. Detach from the world. A more stoic approach might say, in this world, you will have trouble. Just accept it. And the sooner you do, the easier it'll be. A bitter or cynical person would say, in this world, you will have trouble, so forget the world. A more bohemian approach is, in this world, you will have trouble, so enjoy what little you can while you can. Perhaps a more confident modern approach would say, in this world, you will have trouble, but we can fix that. We can overcome the world. But Jesus says something so unique and so daring that if he is not God's son, it is utter narcissism and foolishness. He says, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, don't give up, have courage. Why? Because I have overcome the world. You need more than self-help. You need more than escapism. You need hope. You need a hero and a savior. Why follow Jesus? Given all that you might lose, because he has overcome, conquered the world. And how will he do that? Because it certainly looks as if the world is about to conquer him. But no, he will win. Not with sword and shield, not with bombs and tanks, but by his death and resurrection. By his death, he will defeat our sin, standing in our place, accepting our punishment. By his resurrection, he will defeat our death, giving us proof and hope of life and love that is stronger than death itself. And so Jesus' disciple, John, who wrote this book, would many years later look back on this night and reflect this. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it? that overcomes the world except or only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Here's what he's saying. If you believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that your ultimate hope is found in him alone, then you share in his victory over the world. The pleasures of this world can't seduce you and the pain of this world can't destroy you. So why follow Jesus given all it might cost in all that you might suffer. Because in Christ, and only in him, can your sorrow turn to joy, your fear turn to love, and your trouble turn to peace. If you're a Christian walking in fellowship with God, you're invited this morning to take the Lord's Supper here at North Wake. This is to us a deeply meaningful act whereby we remember how it was that Jesus overcame sin and death in the world through his own sacrifice for us. And so we receive that once again today by faith. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, then we invite you instead of partaking in the table to talk with God and take Jesus Christ himself today by believing upon him. Let's pray together 
And after I pray, if you'll use the uh, center and the wall aisles to approach the table and then these other two uh, mid-side aisles to return to your seats. And if you'll hold the communion elements until everyone has received them when you return to your seat, we'll all take the Lord's Supper together in just a moment. Let's pray. So Father, when our sins and the sorrow of this world would overwhelm us, You gave your only son to overcome and conquer for us. So we hold fast to him in faith again today. For you know, we are often overwhelmed again and again by the difficulty of living in this broken world. So would you strengthen us then by this bread and by this cup that point us to the lengths that you went to give us victory. So Christ, give us courage, give us cheer, For you are our hope and our victory. And it's through you we pray. Amen.